When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Specifically, welcome to the special fourth part of our three-part series on the Brahmin left. So you've heard of a three-dog night, so this is more like a three-host podcast. So uh, Adana, hello. Elizabeth, hello. Hello. Um, hello. I like the double hello. Um, so in this episode, we gather our energy and we focus it with a laser-like precision. Who's going to make a laser sound? I think that was pretty good. Uh, on the common problem of class realignment or dealignment that unites our conversations with um, the American historian Matt New Gilded Age Carp, Jan Werner Populism Müller, and Arlie Strangers in Their Own Land Hochschild. So basically, did the three episodes, conversations we had taken together, support Piketty's thesis about the shifting voting patterns that mean college-educated voters are now uh, the bulwark of liberal or progressive parties? Or did they make the case either for seeing that evidence in another way or you know, rejecting the Piketty hypothesis altogether? Perhaps more to the point, what commonalities do we see in the explanatory scheme that all three provided and what differences. So that's the, the general brief for today. And we thought we might begin, and I should say, it's very awesome of you, Elizabeth, to come in since you weren't involved in the actual conversations to come in um, with your uh, umpire's eye um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and weigh in. I know you have your own um, sort of take on how to think about the Brahmin left, and I, I definitely want to unpack that as well. So we just thought we might begin the discussion by quickly discussing what the core claims of our three guests were, and then potentially seeing how our conversation goes, we might then zero in on a phrase or two that really struck us. And then um, finally, a free-for-all where the three hosts, like dogs in the night, get a chance to either show their teeth or perhaps simply to um, cuddle up together. So um, uh, going in order, maybe we can start off with uh, Matt Karp. So Adonar, do you want to get us going on the, the essence of Matt's argument? Sure, yeah. Uh, thanks, John. And thanks, Elizabeth. I'm very excited to talk about this and reflect on the arguments. I thought that Matt gave us more or less the, what you could call the standard story that you hear in Piketty as well. If for it, obviously in Matt's case, specifically in the context of the United States, but more or less the same story that Piketty tells in Capital and Ideology, which is which is basically that there was a certain era in all of these industrial countries and all of these advanced capitalist countries where industrialization created a working class and that working class by virtue of the rise of industry and the rise of these big industrial cities, these rise of these big working class communities was sort of sutured to 
social democracy and social democratic parties by means of the unions into which they were organized. So there was this kind of glorious age, and we can debate what glorious means exactly, but there was this glorious age where class politics was a key defining feature of the industrial democracies. Let's date it to maybe like the, the late 19th, early 20th century to the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. And in that age, precisely because the working class was represented politically in unions and in social democratic parties, there was a profound class cleavage in politics where the egalitarian left represented the working class disproportionately and the inegalitarian right represented the rich disproportionately and sort of class politics was uh, this, the, the dominant story in, in advanced country politics. And what Matt argues, I think, in following Piketty is that what happened is in effect for a whole host of reasons that might be interesting to unpack and debate, capitalism hemorrhaged jobs for unskilled men. Those jobs went overseas. Unions collapsed. Communities that were, uh, that were, whose vibrancy was in some way a function of those jobs and those unions also collapsed. All of that started to break the bond or at least put a lot of strain on the bond between the working class and in the United States, the Democrats, but in Europe in general, the social democratic parties. And those parties slowly, as the working class ceased to be organized into unions and ceased to be politically its own force, those Democrats and those social Democrats start, started to find that it was kind of rational to seek their electoral fortunes elsewhere in the highly educated. And so they turned away from the working class to the highly educated. Interesting. Okay, so so should I just pick up with Mueller at this point? Um, okay, so I'm going to call him Jan so I don't have to try to pronounce an umlaut. But um, so Jan has an interesting approach, which I think is um, consistent with for those who know his work, you know, he wrote this book that we think is great called What is Populism, but then he's also working on a kind of more proceduralist or formal account of democracies right now. And so I would say that mainly what he had to say was a formalist account of various anti uh, anti pluralistic impulses that can come to define a polity. And so without going into too much of the predictable weeds around exclusionary identity politics, I think you could say that he sort of batted away any attempt we made to um, make him focus squarely on content and instead wanted to say, like, we just have to be aware of parties that don't behave according to the old party rules. They are now behaving according to new rules that turn out to be very appealing to certain voting blocks that, for example, don't concede when they've lost. Like, ju they just claim a kind of true legitimacy, even if their real legitimacy, meaning their formal sort of rule following legitimacy has been eroded. And so it, it, it you know, I, I think, Adana, it'd be interesting to reprise the kind of point you tried to make of looking for where the left wing, right wing equivalency comes in there in terms of parties that have given up on the old order of business. But I do think probably in the end where where Mueller came down was this isn't so much about um, I mean, I didn't say this explicitly, but it's not really so much about a, a Brahmin left as it is about a new kind of right 
which I don't want to call a rump right, but a right that defines itself as um, we are uh, those who, um, who, who, who genuinely ought to constitute the essence of the nation. Now, one of the most interesting disagreements there, sort of looking ahead to Hochschild, is he doesn't really want to focus on the notion of a kind of um, a left behind, like a drama of particular people who are excluded. He's actually much more interested in the notion of, that people have an identity that is strong enough that it causes them to sort of buck political uh, norm following altogether. With Mueller, I guess I wonder a little bit how he runs the historical argument. And I don't think we kind of pursued that with him, but whether he could, he would sort of admit that as part of the formalist account of what's going wrong now, he would also have a historical explanation for it. Or maybe, you know, that's maybe just not his bailiwick. I don't know. But yeah, so that, that's what I got. Yeah. I have a idea about what he would say. I think. Oh, yeah. And I think okay. what he sort of, I think maybe we didn't push him enough on this um, or ask him enough about this, but he did mention at some point, he, he, he thinks that representative institutions are pivotal to uh, healthy politics. So where representative institutions start to erode, the kind of claim making, John, that you're describing becomes something that's a viable political strategy. And then also the media. I think he didn't, we didn't talk too much about this, but you know, the rise of non-traditional forms of media and the collapse of a certain kind of traditional media establishment, I think is also responsible for why, certainly in the United States, why these kinds of claims that politicians make can become so compelling to people. Because I think that is really the question. It's not simply why do we have these political figures that make these outlandish claims about not having lost or whatever, but why is it that such a significant proportion of the population believes them and is energized by them? That seems to me to be the, the, the million dollar question. Totally. So actually that, that totally makes sense to me. I just, I want, I, there's one other point I had wanted to make about Miller and I forgot and you sort of prompted me, which is that I do think we have a, a default um, historical argument. I kind of want to say it's from Hannah Arendt, but I'm sure you guys can correct me as to where it's from, which is that basically democracies or representative democracies are kind of robust because they have a self-correcting set of repertoires that allow them to fine tune, to, you know, to move with the popular will, but to do so through a set of yeah checks and balances, whatever. It's all like schoolhouse rock, you know, like today we're still just a bill, you know? So like that, that those things are robust. Mueller, one of Mueller's key points, I thought, uh, and this is one of the things that made me think about the historicization of the repertoires, is that actually populists are bar borrowing repertoires from one another now in really interesting ways. Like in other words, he made the point that Erdogan, um, Chavez, uh, Putin, and Trump, like ideologically, they can be really different from one another, but in terms of how they proceed, like perhaps with a hollowed out media, perhaps with weakened party structures, how they proceed looks remarkably similar. So Ferry, do you want to Sure, yeah. So um, Hochschild's argument in a lot of ways was similar to the to Karp's argument that Adorno just spooled out, kind of based in a structural account at its, at its core um, in terms of capital flight from the United States and the erosion of the political power of the working classes and the institutions upon which they might have claims, right? And she mentions both the both the unions and certain aspects of the federal government, right? So we can see changes in the you know National Labor Relations Board or other kinds of um, 
organizations uh, as being the kind of where the sort of ground is eroding. Um, and she also located a kind of Clintonian democracy as, as a kind of a choice within that, right? Um, that helped to kind of remove the kinds of things that might put a break on um, unfettered capitalism, red and tooth and claw. And she argues, I mean, she's also sort of, you know, finding the answer in the question of the, the growth of the populist, right? Or at least that's where she kind of approached the question from her own work. Um, you know, that this gives Trump a good story. Um, she talked a lot about legitimacy um, and the ways in which legitimacy oh, yeah. uh, functions, right? And, you know, this, like, he's Trump is lightning in a jar, and it's not only this kind of, you know, sort of stylistic repertoire that he doesn't speak much to me, but or at least speaks to some people, but that the, he's seen as the one who would bring blue collar manufacturing jobs back to the United States. It's you know not really clear how much evidence there is for that. Um, and so the question in the conversation became turned on how progressives or how the left could come up with their own compelling story, right? So that the that the problem was kind of located in the Democratic Party is speaking to this, you know, more wealthier, more suburban base, but they haven't come up with a compelling story that can counter the compelling story that speaks to the working class, or I would say at least to the white working class, mm -hmm. which is one thing that we could talk more about. Um, and she had some answers for that. Um, one had to do with kind of, you could call it sort of creative industrial policy and creative managerial policy, right? So she has this story about Kana's, you know, outsourcing different kinds of uh, help centers and other kinds of tech support to, to Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky and so on, right? Silicon Holler was the phrase that yeah. came up. Um, and, um, and also what, I mean, this phrase didn't come out, but this kind of, you know, uh, just transition sort of um, sets of policies and initiatives. So, you know, trying to move towards for instance, a post-fossil fuel economy in ways that took account of uh, economic justice, that sort of took account of, well, what's going to happen to coal workers, for instance, right? And you could see that as a um, outgrowth of the, you know, resolving the same, this same problem. I think, Adonar, you did a great job really um, registering and responding to Arlie's, um, you know, to her big story, deep story, sorry, and that is obviously the essence of what Arlie has to tell, which is that like the, the, you know, as a sociologist, she seems to be really good at concretizing what the kind of collective cultural gestalt is. The place I pushed back, but maybe I was wrong to push. I, what I was aware of pushing back was more about what role parties have to play in this, like whether the political actors are simply responding to and implementing the will of the people or actually, you know, ginning it up. I mean, you know, you think about Mitch McConnell's Kentucky. I mean, it's not like that's not a place that's naturally filled with white working class anger. That's a place that Mitch McConnell has done a lot of work to right. make people angry. So, right, right. Yeah. And Donna, I mean, you mentioned this in terms of, you know, there's this sort of idea and it's not completely fake, but of who Trump appeals to that kind of ties in with that story. 
But in fact, he appeals to tons of people who who do not fall into this story, who did not have not done particularly badly in the you know past thirty years, and actually a lot of them done really really well. Um, so um, you know, it's one, it's one you know tranche, and it's but it's also one that kind of repeats the story that Trump is telling as well, right? I mean, it's sort of a um, no, that's the way Trump would put it too, right? Like I speak to the people who are left behind and, you know, I'm gonna make America great again. Um, you know, so even when comment, commenters are saying he speaks to these people who feel left behind, they may not have the same definition of America or great or any of these other things, but they are kind of um, adopting the same narrative. I think this is something that, that Jan was arguing as well in his reply to us to be cautious of talking about these people as the quote unquote left behind. I think I would, and, and one of the points that he made that I think is very important is that a lot of the people who we think about as the, the left behind are actually not really responding by flocking to Trump, but just by disengaging entirely from politics. There's just a large proportion of these people who don't participate mm-hmm. at all. And if you think about the profile of the people who are in Harley Arley's book, they're not quite, you know, there, there's a there's a range. Obviously, there are some people who are just, you know, destitute and, and miserable as a consequence of what's happened in Louisiana. But there are some figures, John, you might remember better than me, who are sort of, uh, I think there's one lady in particular who's a pretty well-off white-collar worker at a gas, oil and gas company there, there's like a there's a there's a range here in yeah. the kind of class position yeah there's the uh, dentist with a boat kind of right can we just can we go back to the original phrase brahmin left and think it through in terms of let's take educational educational attainment as the marker here we're we all we have this whole discussion and i think it's pretty true of all three of the people we talked to have been focusing on the converse i think that is on the uh angry right let's yeah. say um do do we want to say anything positive about i mean not positive in the sense of uh, complimentary but like positive in the sense of descriptive of the category of people who have chosen in their educational attainment to go over to the left parties. I mean, is that something that just goes without saying? It, it strikes me that like with Jan Werner Muller, there's an account where he's talking about essentially a moving target because he's not just talking about realignment between parties. He's also talking about this emergence of this new kind of, you know, virtually unpartied voting right block. But whether you think about that complication or not, can we just, Think about the the, okay, the but yes, it's it's in this question of the Brahmin left. I mean, the only part in the conversations that and in our conversations where this sort of difference between the liberal or the sort of or the Democratic Party and the left was teased out was in at the moment when it was said, well, we're really not talking about the Brahmin liberals. We're talking about we're ta- we're not talking about the liberals. We are talking about the left. And then, at least in my reading of that conversation. It was sort of like dot dot dot. <laughs> I'd like to hear more content of that exactly because I don't. I mean, who says that the Democratic Party is the left or has been the left for like a really long time? And you know, sure, we can say that. At least speaking in the U.S., which is the case that I know better, th- 
this has been an ongoing thing. And even within the left, you know, there are left parts of the party, but the left parts of the party are the ones that are, you know, yes, they, they may or may not have different constituencies, but they are in fact arguing for things like raising the minimum wage, improving infrastructure, bringing jobs back, higher taxes for corporations. I mean, they're, those policies of the left wing of the Democratic Party are in fact not particularly in the interest of a more and high, higher and higher income and class brackets. So it's not that I necessarily disagree with the insights. I just feel like the term Brahmin left, it's very easy to then sort of say, okay, well, it's all of these, you know, it's the Democrats and the left part of the, you know, and the left, what I would call the actual left. Um, and also we're not just talking about, um, you know, the demographics of party membership, we're also talking about policy. And I think there's a lot of granularity in there that we could tease out. Yeah, but I, I think I think this is precisely where the concept becomes really provocative in some ways, because if if I really like the way you put it, Elizabeth, is that there are these two things going on to which we could apply the moniker Brahmin. One is the composition of the sort of demographic composition of the people who are voting or who are active. And one is the content of the policies. And in some ways, the whole, the whole puzzle paradox provocation here is that if we were to look at the demographic composition, if Piketty's story is right, and some people will say that it's not exactly right, but if we, in the United States, if we, if we think about Piketty's story, as you move leftward on the political spectrum, the Brahmin demographic composition uh, becomes more and more apparent. And that contrasts really profoundly in some ways, as you're saying, with the policy content as you move towards the left on the political spectrum. And I'm not sure anyone totally has totally wrestled with that, as you're saying, Elizabeth, in our, in our interviews. But if it's correct, I don't know exactly what it implies does it imply that we can depend on the brahmin left to kind of vote and advocate against its interests in some mm -hmm. ways i mean matt's provocation in the piece which we talked about briefly with him john was that uh it is true that you'll get some sort of pro forma left wing language and left but when push comes to shove and you vote in i think it was illinois for a minimum wage these people right. don't come along they won't vote for it. Right. Um, right. Ultimately, it's a little much to expect people to vote against their fundamental interests. And I'm not sure. I mean, th this is, a, in fact, uh, we didn't, I don't know, uh, ever address this, John, with any of the, the interviewees, but there was that one uh, response to Piketty, which we linked to on the website whenever we introduced these interviews, which tries to show precisely what Elizabeth is describing, which is that a lot of the people in Europe who are voting for left-wing parties are actually not, a lot of the highly educated people who are voting for left-wing parties are actually not voting for the Social Democrats. They're voting for the Greens and other kind of parties that are on the left. And they're also self-described defenders of redistribution and the welfare mm -hmm. state. And so there is this kind of disjuncture that is just difficult to think through. Right, right. And I, yeah. And, and policy. I mean, I don't think we can like just let sit back and just everything will, you know, be for the best and the best of all possible worlds. I just think that the term the Brahmin left needs to, you know, has more in it than, totally. um, than 
some of the parts of the conversation necessarily should. Totally. Um, and then I guess I'll just say one more thing, which is about the question of um, particularities of race in the U.S. and how this plays out, right? Because the story that you're telling Daniel about, you know, this kind of period before that, um, in the before, um, when um, there was a class alignment with the political parties and the unions as a kind of central place in that. I mean, the only the big part of the working class that couldn't join a lot of unions and wasn't particularly represented was the black working class, right? Um, so um, how does that play into that story? And I, and I think even now, you know, that's also true if you look at sort of the, the next chapter, which, which we've been describing, um, you know, it's not the, it's not working class black people for the most part, like sure there are some examples and those examples there's a lot, you know, made of them yeah. um, and they're featured prominently on social media. Yeah. Um, but for the most part, it's not the black working class or the, the you know, those, those black voters who are, um, you know, also have been really screwed over the past 30 years. Yeah. Um, they're not going to Trump, right? Um, and many of them are not not voting either. I mean, they may be prevented from voting, but but I don't think the answer is necessarily that they're just sitting back and throwing their hands up in the air either. Yeah, I, Elizabeth, I think it's a it's a really important point. I wonder what you would make of this response to your your observation, which is that what the the kind of the Matt Carp Piketty story is trying to say is that. Yes, this is primarily about in Europe, the kind of nativist working class, the white working class yeah. in, in, in the United States, the white working class. But what has happened basically is that in, in the United States, at least after the New Deal, there was a period in which the working classes, black and white, were both voting for the Democrats. And what happened was as the structural changes we were describing unfolded, there was an opportunity, I don't know how big that opportunity was, to continue to speak to the material interests of the white working class. Uh, and the, the Democrats failed to do that. Yes. And as a result, the Republicans came along and didn't speak necessarily that successfully, as you were saying, to the material interests of the working class. It's not like they brought all these jobs back, but they mm -hmm. spoke to the racism of mm -hmm. the white working mm -hmm. class. Yes. And that racism and the nativism, that's never going to be appealing, obviously, to the black working class. But it does mean that you sort of suture the class, or not suture, exactly the opposite, split the class in half, right? <laughs> and because the white working class is something like 60% of the working class in the United States, that's a problem. I want to connect that to our question about um, Matt Karp's example of the place in Illinois where people voted to protect their property tax exemptions or whatever the hell it was that uh, he saw people voting, which is to say, yeah, I mean, we see people voting against their material interests all the time. I feel like that's the essence both of Arlie's, Arlie's work and also what Miller was saying about exclusionary identity politics, because people don't just vote on their uh, material interests. They also vote on other kinds of cultural value interests, things that are upheld. Um, you know, people, you know, you might be willing to vote for a pro-life candidate, even if you knew that person was uh, instantiating policies that were going to be disadvantageous for you, but it would be worth it because your value was protected. So okay. I guess the, the question I have about that is, isn't there a story to be told about that and the left 
like a long-term story about that on the left. Like there are people on the left who vote against their material interests. And I guess the final wrinkle I would add to that is that like, if you're educationally attained and you're at a higher income level, potentially your material interests would matter less to you. Totally, totally. Because, you know, yeah. okay, fine, my taxes go up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in some ways that's sort of the modernization story of all of these changes, which is a rival narrative that we discussed briefly with Matt, which is that yeah. in effect, as people get richer, they care less about material facts. They care more about cultural facts. And what starts to happen is that cultural issues start to dominate politics as countries get mm -hmm. richer. I think Matt had an effective response to that, which is to say that there's still substantially a lot of people in the United States who, who you know, they're like, what was that a crazy stat that we heard recently that 40 to 50% of Americans couldn't, wouldn't be able to find $400 if they needed it to repair their car or something like that. We're still, we're still quite far away from that, but it might, John, as you're saying, explain what we're seeing amongst the Brahmin left specifically, right? I think that was your point. Um, but I, I guess the, the, the response to that would be to say that kind of a, a strategy that depends on basically the self-flagellation of the Brahmin left for redistribution, yeah. which is maybe what the left has been doing for the last five, 10 years, may moderate inequality slightly, but it's not likely to take us yeah. back to the egalitarian or take us toward like a, a, a properly egalitarian income. Distribution. No, definitely not. Can I just move towards a conclusion here, you guys, by asking, uh, I said I was going to ask as a framework whether there were, you know, moments that genuinely uh, startled or surprised you. And I think we've mentioned a couple of them, but does anybody want to jump in on anything else that struck you? Yeah, I think this is just to kind of have a circling around. I think your point about the key issue of legitimacy and whether, um, and what it would be like to have that threaded through all three of the conversations. Because I think that the issue, I mean, if it's true that um, there is actually, there are political participants who are advocating policies that we at least believe might reduce inequality, right? Um, then, but, and yet are not, you know, the people who are sort of most strongly aligned with them are, not the people who are most benefited by it, then the issue really becomes about something about legitimacy, right? And about sort of being able to speak to that constituency, right? And, you know, I think maybe, maybe this conversation is underplaying a little bit how much Bernie was able to reach some of that. I mean, if you, if you look at his numbers, there, there are, you know, numbers of people who are, you know, not college educated and they are, um, there is an income difference. Some of the income difference is correct, corrected out by age, but not all of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, but you know, so the, the question really becomes how do the how does the story get told, right? Or how how can an effective story be told? Yeah, absolutely. I think that was in some ways the moment of of optimism in both of our conversations with Arlie and and Matt. I think maybe I'll just sound the note of pessimism that I imagine Jan would introduce, which is that in some ways, I, I, I think Jan would, would, would say the following, which is that in some ways it's not sufficient to have an appealing story, which I think is the kind of story that Arlie was saying Bernie was able to tell. That's maybe 80% of the battle. 
but it's also important to be implanted in the institutions of the, the life of the people whom you're trying to convince. And that was what Jan was lamenting about the collapse of certain mediating institutions like right. parties and unions and, and the media. And so I, I worry that attempts to craft a compelling story try to do an end run around this more foundational problem about mm -hmm. the, the lack or the death of that representative institution. Yeah, that's a fair point. So the whirring of my computer makes me afraid for the status of our recording, and it makes me think that we should draw to an end. So maybe I'll just say that Recall This Book is sponsored by Brandeis and the Mandel Humanities Center. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen. Website design and social media by Miranda Peary of the English Department. Um, Elizabeth and Adana and I are eager to hear your comments, criticism, and thought on today's discussion and on the notion of Brahmin left generally. So please write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you enjoyed today's show, you might check out earlier Brahmin Left conversations with, as you know, Matt Karp, Jan Werner Müller, and Arlie Hochschild, and also our conversation with Thomas Piketty, the one that started it all off back on January 6th about proprietarian ideologies. So um, Elizabeth Adonner, thank you. It's, it's been a pleasure. Um, and hey, Adonner, we, we loved having you as a host. Don't, don't, don't stop hosting. Stay in the mix. <laughs> It was great. I really enjoyed it as well. I'm just going to end by saying from all of us here at Recall This Book, thanks for listening. <laughs>